This is episode 37 of Cinescope. And what am I going to say? I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the show today is Blake Collier to talk about his all-time favorite film, Gross Point Blank. Blake, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm a little tired. Uh, long day of work, but I am excited to talk about this movie since you are obviously so passionate about it. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I am very passionate, as as hopefully that will uh, show uh, as, as the podcast goes on. So uh, just in case y'all don't remember, uh, I was on the Strangers episode, I believe it was. And uh, I'm, a, I'm the resident horror fiend and columnist slash producer at Real World Theology. I co-host the podcast The Body of the Blood and Impossible to Say, and I also happen to be a John Cusack fanatic, which will come into play in the film tonight as well. So that's a little bit about me, just to jog your memory. Yes, you were on episode 12, which was The Shining episode, and you know that one I was trying to fit a theme. We were leading up to Halloween in episode 13, and so I said, hey, Blake, you're the horror guy. Would you like to talk about my favorite horror movie, or one of my favorite horror movies? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, even way back then, back in October, you were saying, you know, I like this movie, but sometime I'd like to talk about my favorite. So this has been yeah. a, a work in progress for a little while now, and I'm glad you were able to come onto the show this week and talk about it with me. I'm glad you could have me. Well, before we get started talking, I want to remind everybody to please go over to iTunes, rate and review the show, subscribe to the show, all those things that help us to grow our audience and to just continue going on, keep on keeping on, and expand. And if you can share this episode or any episode that you enjoy with your friends and family, that's another way for you to help us out and to just, again, help us to grow. So that being said, let's talk about our movie. Are you ready, Blake? I'm ready. Okay, we are talking about Gross Point Blank, which was released on April 11th of 1997. So we're recording this the day after its 20th anniversary. How about that? That's awesome. That was not planned, by the way. <laughs> no, it, it was not, because I had actually forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> this was directed by George Armitage, who only has two other feature film directing credits to his name, and that those are Miami Blues and The Big Bounce. It was written by Tom Jankiewicz, Stephen Pink, D.V. DeVincent, how would you say that? D.V. DeVincentis? DeVincentis? DeVincentis, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, something along it's those lines. <laughs> right. And then uh, John Cusack had a hand in writing this, which I, I am sure is attributed to probably improvisation, if I had to guess. More than likely. Uh, yeah. The music here, the, the Wikipedia page did list a composer, but you have oh, here that awesome. uh, music by various artists, because there, there really isn't much of an incidental music or score here. But just so we at least say the name, the name mentioned on Wikipedia is Joe Strummer. So, oh, okay. So he's from he's from the Clash. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't think got about it, got that. It. Yeah. He's he's uh, he's the drummer from the Clash. Right. But like 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 you've noted here, there, there really isn't much of a score itself to talk about. It is very much its soundtrack. Yeah. So the movie stars John Cusack, Minnie Driver, Dan Aykroyd, Alan Arkin, Hank Azaria, Jeremy Piven, and Joan Cusack. So. How about you just, you get this started, Blake. What was your first experience with Gross Point Blank? So I didn't actually see this in the theater because at the time I was, oh, 
man, I want to say I was in early high school, late middle school when this was out. And I think I, the first time I saw it was rented on a VHS. Yes, a VHS. <laughs> and <laughs> I watched it with a group of high school friends of mine who were uh, all massive gun nuts. Uh, they still, to this day, are massive gun nuts, uh, whereas I've kind of parted ways with that that mindset. And I believe the, the experience I had watching it was both uh, recognizing the humor in it, but also uh, having a bunch of argumentation over whether or not the amount of bullets being shot matched the loads of the gun uh, that they were using. <laughs> and so very important, very important. It's very important, especially for uh, middle schoolers slash high schoolers. <laughs> apparently. Well, I, so, I, I won't lie. I, I often count bullets in films as yeah, well. I didn't yeah. so much for this one because there's a lot of them, but I, yes, I, I think that's a, a fun pastime when the situation calls for it. Yes, no doubt. And so... Uh, Really, you know, Gross Point Blank for me was in some ways kind of an identity builder. Like this is this was a group of friends that uh, probably to this day are the only holdovers I have from high school uh, on the whole. And so they're, you know, watching movies like this and probably The Evil Dead would be the other one uh, that, that we watched quite a bit was kind of a way to ingrain myself in that group. And so... Uh, yeah, and Gross Point Blank has a pretty significant place uh, when it comes to kind of my uh, young adulthood. Yeah, it's not the first time on the show that somebody has talked about a film that was just sort of, an, like you said, an identity builder in their early mm-hmm. life. There's There's films that for one reason or another, we see at a certain point in our lives and it just connects to us in some way. And so for me, it's always been Back to the Future. I saw that when I was 10, oh, and man. it's just always been my favorite. And now you've got Gross Point Blank, which you watched in early high school. Yep. And everybody, I think, has that one movie that maybe you can't explain it, maybe you can't, but it just hit you at the right time. Yes. And, you know, it's it's funny because uh, I lost count at around the 100th time I watched this film. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> over, the, over the years. And... uh I literally kept count until I hit 100, and then after that, I kind of got a little squishy on the numbers. So it's 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 over 100. I'm not sure uh, how many times. There was a time where I would watch it at least uh, once or twice a week. Um, wow. So Impressive. It's, yeah, it's it's a little insane. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, um, this is only the second live-action John Cusack movie I've ever seen. The first being Serendipity, which I watched for this show as well, a awesome. few episodes back uh, with Eric Skoll. And, you know, I hadn't actually heard of this movie until you mentioned it to me way back in October. And I was like, oh, oh your favorite is what? Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was a new experience for me. I didn't really know anything except the very, very faintest outline of the plot when I first started watching this movie, um, the word assassin was something that I knew going in. But other than that, I had no expectation or connection or anything like that. And, uh, you know, even as far as Minnie Driver goes, I think this is only my second or third movie seeing her in. And I'm I'm more familiar with Arkin and Aykroyd and Azaria to a certain extent. But again, I, I like these films where they're more fresh on me because I'm not as experienced with the material, with the people in them, and it's just altogether new. So I, I did walk into this pretty blind on more than one count, and uh, I think that 
definitely helps in the experience and it, it's going to hopefully add some cool perspective between somebody who has seen it more than a hundred times <laughs> and somebody who has seen it for the first time today actually so I'm, I'm actually excited that this has been your first time and that you knew very little going in because that that's the best way to watch it definitely and uh I, I haven't revealed to you in any way what I thought about the movie either. Yeah, so that'll not. be revealed over our discussion. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let's go ahead and move on to, to story. So what about the story sort of just draws you in here, Blake? So I remember the kind of the, the tagline of the film, um, not the official poster tagline, but kind of the way most or the, like the promotional material described it was uh, what if a, a hitman goes back to his high school reunion. And that concept to me just struck me in such a, it is both dark, but also hilarious. Cause you, you don't ever think about that. Like you, you think about people who are doctors and lawyers and hell, even janitors uh, coming in, you know, to their high school reunion and being able to tell about the work they do and, and maybe uh, being prideful or being ashamed or, or whatever it may be. But you don't ever think about someone who has such a shady background going back to a high school reunion. And that concept just really grabbed me uh, before I even watched the film. And the fact that I went into this just expecting... Well, really not knowing what to, what to kind of look for... Um, I mean, I knew the basic outline and I knew it was going to be, it had to be somewhat humorous because that's just a very absurd kind of premise. And so the story itself, what I like about this movie and what keeps surprising me each time I watch it still to this day is just how it has pretty much a a portion of just about every genre of film out there. It's got action. It's got romance. It's got comedy. It's got um, espionage. It's got all these things wrapped into this darkly humorous tale about this guy who is not only trying to be transparent about his past, but trying to get the girl back and trying to find himself again. And I love that. I I love self-discovery films. And I think this is probably the film that kind of um, maybe brought me into a world where self-discovery was something I looked for in films and, and, and something that really moves me in a lot of ways. And, and I feel like uh, Martin Blank is maybe the epitome of that in my mind. So that's kind of, those are some of the central things I love about the story. You actually mentioned the first thing that I noticed when watching the movie as well. The first thing I wrote down was the juxtaposition there at the very beginning of I Can See Clearly Now by Johnny Nash yeah. with the assassination of this biker riding down the street. And exactly. he's cleansing his eye. So it matches the lyrics of the song, too. I can see clearly now. I just washed my eye. And then there's this conversation about a high school reunion that's going on at the same place in time. And it all all at once, it's what kind of movie is this again? And yeah, exactly. I, I think I find myself gravitating to those kinds of films as well that don't stick to a particular genre. Back to the Future is a comedy in a lot of ways, but it's also a drama. It's also sci-fi. You've yeah. got all that mixed in. You look at The Dark Knight and it's not just a superhero film. It's got elements of espionage. It's got elements of action thriller. It's got elements of like gangster crime and all yeah. this cool kind of stuff. So I, I love those genre crossing films. And so that automatically drew me into this one serendipity did this as well the other john cusack film i've seen where it's 
not an action film, or at least not primarily. It's not primarily a romance either. It's about, like you said, this man sort of coming to terms with his life and making changes in his life and trying to figure life as a whole out. And uh, then it brings in all those other elements of action, of comedy, of romance. And uh, I, I really like that. Yeah. And there, there are many moments like I can see clearly now with the murder uh, throughout the film where you have the, these these happier songs or perceived happier songs uh, matched with those sometimes really gruesome and violent action scenes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to notice, like, so one of the, some of the scenes that stand, stand out to me are the ones where he basically says the same refrain, it's not me, or why does everyone think it's me? Whenever he kills someone, he, he always says that. And, and those scenes are so pivotal within the scope of the story because you just see him slowly deconstruct in like the very film itself. And each time he has to say it, you start to feel like he's sinking in, like the knowledge is sinking in that he doesn't, he start, he's starting to not believe it anymore. He's starting to think that it actually is him that's doing this and that he has to take ownership in it. And so like, it's usually followed by some kind of very violent blunt kill that he does and he says that and you're just like each time but it kind of is you and he starts to recognize that and those are some of my favorite scenes in the film because they just get like more and more uh like his countenance just gets worse and worse as the film goes on uh, as he starts to realize that and as he starts to be honest with himself yeah the third time in in particular when he says it is almost in defeat yeah. Where he has just uh, killed the guy at the reunion with the pen mm-hmm. in the neck, and yep. he he sits there, and Debbie walks around the corner, and of course runs off screaming, but he just sort of kneels down and holds his head in his hands. It's not me. Well, yes, it is, and yeah. <laughs> that's the third or fourth time he says it at this point, and so yeah, it it really is in defeat. Well, the only other thing I had mentioned for story, at least because I have a lot of character notes, is mm-hmm. that. And this doesn't really mean a whole lot, but this is a very 90s movie in execution, at least as well. And I appreciate that. You've got these over the top gunfights complete with these bright muzzle flashes and uh, the the super 90s soundtrack with the nostalgic 80s mixed in. So it it feels in its element (laughs) as a 90s film. Uh, But I don't (laughs) think that dates it too much either. I think it's still a very watchable movie. It's not like cringeworthy 90s. Yeah. And it's. So I feel like because it, it, it places its setting in, you know, 96, 97, it almost requires the film to look that way. And I think that's why it, it still stands the test of time is that you're going into this expecting a guy who is about to go to his uh, 10 year high school reunion in 1997. You don't want it to look extra modern. Uh, you want it to look nineties because that's, that's what they're trying to get at. And so that that it really works surprisingly well how how well it stands up and you know yeah you can kind of laugh at some of the uh the car body styles and the fact that there's still uh, arcade machines and convenience stores and all these things that are very 90s uh in their orientation but that's the that's kind of the key to the writing of this film is that yeah all those things can be noticed and they can be chalked up to uh, the the period of time that the film was made, but ultimately the writing stands out as something that 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 really can transcend uh, the time it's kind of being made in, and 
that's what I love about uh, the story is the writing is really solid. There's some really strong, witty dialogue and kind of just the, the, the progress of the narrative is, is kind of stunning the more you think about it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 a it's a story that I can talk about quite a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and use the talk of the the dialogue to transition into the characters. So let's talk about Sweet. Martin a little bit. What I love just about Cusack in general is that he's such a natural actor. Yeah. In both of the roles I've seen him in and in clips I've seen from other movies, he just is so relaxed in the role. He's so authentic. And I just like watching him because it doesn't seem at any point that he's forcing anything. It's so it's so interesting that, that you have that view because a lot of people would actually go the opposite way and say that he's so like with serendipity, for instance, he's not your typical leading man. Like he's he's kind of gangly. He's he's kind of dorky um he doesn't have that kind of uh, brad pitt uh suaveness to him he's very kind of raw and and blunt just like it is odd to see him oftentimes in an action role because once again he doesn't quite fit that role so yes i i, I totally agree that he's he's a natural when it comes to acting but the the places you end up finding him as an actor are very odd choices a lot of times and yet he makes it work I totally believed he was a hitman. Uh, this whole time, I was like, I feel like if I actually met a hitman in real life, they would have the the audacity and the paranoia and just the black humor of Martin Blank. I, I would almost think that that'd be the only way they could survive. And I think he pulls it off wonderfully. Yeah, he does have this this dark sense of humor that is definitely befitting of an assassin of his line of work. Yeah. And it's funny because that, that dark sense of humor conflicts with him at certain times in the movie with his desire to be honest with Debbie and with Paul and his ability to convince other people that, that because he has this sort of dark comedic personality and has that sort of twinge to his, his voice and the way he talks to people, it, it doesn't always convey honesty the way he would like it to. No, it doesn't. <laughs> There's almost a, a natural sarcasm that, uh, that, that follows it around. Right. But I think also, despite the sense of humor, he's, he's got this detachment that you can see in his eyes and almost a sort of pain or a history in his eyes that you see. And later in the film, we learn more about that, that dark history and why he is the way he is to a certain extent. Uh, but I, I love that John Cusack is able to bring both elements of the, that character to the screen. Yeah, and it's I really think he's able to kind of wear many hats. I, I think one of my favorite relationships in the in the film is is ultimately between him and Debbie. And it's there's such an awkwardness, but also a tenderness in the way that their relationship is portrayed because he left her on prom night. Uh, 10 years before and uh, disappeared and never said a word to her for those 10 years. And then all of a sudden he shows back up and there's this, the first thing you see whenever they meet each other again is they like embrace and start kissing like madly. Right. It's like this visceral high, <laughs> very high school reaction. Yeah, it is. And, and, but there's just that, that natural attraction they have for each other. And then they have to like, they end up putting their guard up uh, right after that because they know that that's, that's not, 
That's not the way life works. Like you can't just pick up 10 years later and, and start off where you left off. And so even though I, I feel like that's, that's a very gracious moment, it's, it's something that's very stark and it stands out within the scope of the movie. And really, if they'd gone that direction, the story might have turned a little different. But I just love that. There, there's a tenderness there and there's a playfulness and, and a humor that, that kind of gets traded between them. Even though she's dealing with the struggle of, you know, being betrayed, ultimately, uh, by him. And he's dealing with the fact that he doesn't like who he's become. And he longs for the time when he had her. And so he's, he's looking to, to get her again. And so that's the struggle. And that's kind of the, uh, the standoff that they're having in each scene that they're in. And I just feel like that relationship and the way Minnie Driver and John Cusack play off of each other is, is marvelous. Debbie has this attitude about her. There's the tenderness there. But and I, when I say attitude, I don't mean like cynicism or anger even really i mean she maybe gets angry at one or two points of the film but i i see it more as a realism of the way the world is and this acceptance in a way of who martin is and she doesn't know the whole story of him but she she gives him multiple chances throughout the film the first chance just being talking to him after he's appeared 10 years after ditching her at prom so i i I like that she has that attitude about her and then she also does have like you were talking about the, this charm and this lovely personality she's somebody i'd like to hang out with she, she yeah, she's cool sure. she's uh i i like the character i just like her uh she many drivers a likable actress i think and she mm-hmm. she looks great on screen she acts well alongside john cusack and uh does a character a lot of justice she also has this this penchant for forgiveness for martin uh, which is funny because earlier in the film when Grocer, played by Dan Aykroyd, and Martin meet up for the first time, Grocer has this quote, life's full of second chances. And ultimately, it's it's more Debbie who gives the, the second chances and the third chance and the fourth chance to Martin as first he, he comes back after the 10-year abandonment and then he kills the person and she's run off and she comes back to his place where he's staying and asks for an explanation rather than just completely abandoning him. And then ultimately the fourth chance is after Martin has saved her father from grocer and the the other mercenaries. So even though this, this quote came from a character who he he's maybe true to his word to a certain extent, everybody gets second chances, but he he's not as forgiving as, Debbie is. And so I I like her character and the way she sort of approaches everything in this movie. Yeah. Well, and and, and like you said with with Grocer and uh, uh, Dr. Oatman, played by Alan Arkin and uh, Dan Aykroyd, man talk about some some key players in the film even though they're ultimately minor characters. And I think for for having as little FaceTime as they do, they are striking. Uh, each time they're on the screen because they're basically playing off of, of Martin Blank. They're, they're playing off John Cusack and they're being the unhinged kind of um, oddball characters. Dr. Oatman is this shrink that is ultimately afraid of Martin because he knows what Martin does and Martin playfully uh, engages in threats towards him. 
And so he's just constantly like going to his rosary and, and, and like asking the Lord for, <laughs> for help. And, and then grocery you have is just this insane assassin who's trying to get uh, control over, over Martin and he can't ever do it. And he time and again, he just keeps trying to destroy Martin and he even turns government uh, agents on him. And uh, which is where Hank Azaria comes in. And, you know, it's, it's just what I like about these minor characters is that they're not there to steal the show. They're there to create an atmosphere and a setting and a narrative in which Martin and Debbie can fully bloom and become the characters they need to become. And that's what I love about it is that it feels like all the actors are basically in it to make the main thrust of the film, this relationship ring true and be meaningful by the end of the film. I sort of saw Grocer as almost a glimpse into Martin's possible future. If he had continued in this line of work, because he's clearly got this, he's got a few screws loose (laughs) and uh, he's got an even further disconnect from their work of taking people's lives than Martin already has. You see that disconnect in Martin, but you see it even even further and almost this sort of glee or even maybe even a sense of enjoyment in what Grocer is doing in killing other people and sicking people on each other in a way. So that's how I sort of read that character. And, you know, he he has that quote, uh, life's full of second chances. And he's true to his word. He gives (laughs) he gives Martin that second chance. But as soon as Martin, in a way, betrays grocer by taking the Detroit job, even though I don't think mm-hmm. Martin really had much of a choice or a hand in the matter. Uh, yeah. He he's not willing to give third chances or fourth chances like Debbie does. And so again, that, that almost enjoyment for taking other people's lives and those, those few screws loose that he, he's a little bit of a crazy person. Yeah. I mean, he, he very much didn't have a choice in it because he, you know, is that black cat Friday the 13th kind of feeling about it. Right. yeah it's and you know it's it's always it's always fun to see joan cusack uh, play opposite her her brother as well because you almost feel like the the animosity and kind of the playfulness that they have between them is very much real (laughs) (laughs) right uh, she's so over the top and fun in this movie too she's she 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 has that scene where she sort of drops character once Martin leaves the room, like she's putting on an act (laughs) when she's around him or on the phone with him where the, the two contrasting phone calls are one's a bullet order and one is uh, talking about soup. (laughs) And then the other one at the very end, the last time we see her when she's just sing songy, pouring gasoline around the office, burning everything down uh, work as usual. Uh, it's, It's so wonderful. Yeah, there's there's really yeah, I was I was trying to think today if there was a if there was a flaw in the characterizations or or in the acting uh picks and I just I'm I'm too close to the film for one thing, but I just could not think of a of a place that I felt was truly weak uh in in the scope of the film. Uh but you may have something, I don't know. Not necessarily. Um I did want to mention Paul real quick uh-huh. because he's played by Jeremy Piven who from what I've been told by Eric Skull when we talked about serendipity and from what I've read, him and Cusack are pretty good friends. And so he often plays this sort of friend character to Cusack in yeah. in these films. And I just love that they have that sort of rapport with each other that so clearly shines on screen. When, when Paul and Martin reunite 
after not seeing each other for 10 years, they almost pick up their friendship right where it left off. And they, mm-hmm. they clearly have this really strong bond with each other and they enjoy time spent with each other. So I think that's a really cool collaboration, even though Piven's character isn't huge in this movie. He does play a pretty strong turn in Martin's character, sort of humanizing himself. For sure. And unlike Debbie, Paul almost has this sort of lack of awareness in knowing that people change because he has been living in this town for 10 years. Well, beyond 10 years, it's been 10 years since high school, but all these people are still around. They're still doing the same jobs. They're, they're still the same old people. And here's Martin who's been gone for 10 years and comes back. And Paul realizes, I don't know this person anymore. Yeah. And so there's this, this sense of awareness that, Oh, okay. People do change if they're given the chance to really, and he's willing to help Martin in that moment right after he's he's found the dead body. Uh, mm-hmm. But then after that, he almost shows this hurt that he doesn't know the whole story. He doesn't know his friend anymore. Yeah. And there there is a little bit of pain in that scene before Martin leaves a reunion where this character who considered him a friend is pained at not knowing his friend anymore. Yeah. Well, basically looking at a stranger. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, it's you know, and, and that, those are interesting moments because I think you, you know part of it. We'll we'll get into the, some of the themes a little bit later, but one of the interesting things is just how we relate to each other and how time can change those relationships. And and you know, if those friendships don't last, uh, and you you see a person again ten years down the road without any kind of catching up uh, up to that point. You know, you're lo- you're basically looking at a new person. I mean, people change within amount of time, and and so if you're not up to date, if you're not keeping up with that person, you're not going to see the same person that you knew uh, back ten years ago. And so there's there's moments in this film that that really just strike at the nature of of human relationship and, and human connectivity uh, in such a profound and, and kind of uh, poignant way. And I think that's one of them, uh, even though it's kind of a negative view of it, but still poignant. It's it's still this idea that like, you know, friendships sometimes have a uh, have an expiration date, and whenever you stop knowing the person that you were friends with, that that has a monumental effect on on uh, your life. And so, uh, Paul is recognizing that in the moment, and he is feeling the pain of basically losing a friend, someone that he was so close to. Right. Well, any other characters that you wanted to talk about before we sort of move on? No, I I think we're, uh, I think we covered most of them. Well, anything to say about the music? Uh, We already talked a little bit about it, about how it's, it's a very 90s soundtrack, some 80s mixed in as you'd sort of expect, because the 90s is the time where nostalgia really sort of started hitting us home, I think. Yeah, for sure. So I own I own both volumes of the soundtrack. Uh, the second volume I think is a little harder to to get nowadays. Uh, I think you have to pretty much buy it used on Amazon. Um, the first volume I think you can pretty much get anywhere, uh, iTunes or whatever. Um, I haven't checked to see uh, if the second one has been put on iTunes or anything like that. But I own both, and I I drag them out occasionally uh, just for road music. So like if I'm on a road trip, I, I like to to listen to it because. I, I tend to like uh, 80s music, and I tend to like um, some of the the early 90s stuff, which is what is usually showcased on on these albums. And so, it's very nostalgic. It's very, but it, you know, none of these songs that are in the film 
I can listen to without thinking about this movie. So in a sense, this movie has ruined all those songs for me <laughs> because I think about one thing and one thing only when I hear them. And, and that's that's the stuff about this film. So there isn't much else for me to say, at least it is a very 90s soundtrack. I, I like the juxtaposition of the sort of happy go lucky kind of tracks with mm-hmm. the deep, violent scenes. Um, yeah. it's, it's just a fun way to approach things a little bit differently. So. Yeah, I, I like the soundtrack. It, it, it's a fun soundtrack. It reminds me of growing up in the 90s <laughs> yeah, <no laughs> to doubt. a certain extent. Um, <laughs> and th- there are some great tracks on it. So for sure, there, there will be links for at least what's available on iTunes in the show notes if you want to check it out yourself. So with that, let's go ahead and move into the themes in the relevance section. You've written some pretty lengthy stuff on this movie in the past. Yeah. And I, I read over it and I, I was interested by all of it. And it sort of had an influence on my notes so i i'm awesome. gonna let you sort of lead us off what what is your takeaways from this movie well so i think so i've got a little bit of a story um i actually i think it was 2013 i was on the verge of writing the article and we'll, we'll put that in the links uh in the show notes um the link to the article and it's i at the time i was writing it just because i love this movie and i wrote basically a 10-page paper with nowhere to actually send it so I just wrote it with no, nothing in mind, uh, just because I needed to get it out, because I had all these thoughts about the film, and I needed to get it on paper. And so it sat there for probably about, no, well, probably three or four years before I did anything with it. And I happened to be on Twitter one day, and I thought back to the fact that I had written this, and I just, I tweeted out, and I said, thinking back about this article I'd written, I wrote 10 pages, uh with no place, with nothing in mind for it. And I I was talking about Gross Point Blank, and I tagged John Cusack in it. And John Cusack actually replied, and he said, uh, he said a cuss word, and then he said, <laughs> oh, how interesting, like, send it to me. And so I had a bunch of people reply to me after that, and they said, uh, would you like me to put it on my site? so that it would be easier for him to find it and read it. And so I ended up going with a, a website called Vampire Nomad. Strangely enough, I've actually become friends with this woman uh, since then, uh, which has been a pretty pretty awesome relationship in a lot of ways. And she was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be glad to put it up there. Like, length is not an issue for, for me. Uh, so I ended up doing some changes on it, and I put it up. And he actually did read it, and he said, you know, it was real, it was very good. And That's very cool. Uh, yeah, it was cool. And when I wrote it, I remember it, it, I had forgotten this, but when I wrote it, I had talked about writing it and had tagged him in it. And he actually sent me a direct message basically asking me, what what do I want to know about the film? And so I asked him a couple of questions and he answered them and that was the extent of it. And his response was kind of this juxtaposition of the truth that we tell ourselves over and against the reality of our actual standing for him. A lot of it was, was political and in nature. And so like this idea that America can be like this great nation who is a peacemaker, all these things. And yet a lot of times our foreign policy tells us otherwise, like we, we go and we, we bomb other countries and all these things. So he's saying, like, we, we tell ourselves these stories, but the reality of the situation says something completely different. And so for him, Martin Blank was a representation of this this two-faced nature of reality. 
and the stories we tell ourselves. And I basically took it in the other way in the sense that took it in a personal way. Like we all tell a story about ourselves, and, and some of it is true, but a lot of it is based on how we want to be viewed. And for redemption to happen within the scope of this film, he has to come to terms with the actual reality of who he is. And that's why each of those scenes that we, we talk about where he keeps saying, you know, it's not me, he gets more and more downcast and he gets defeated. And it takes that and it takes being confronted by Debbie at the very end, point blank, you know, being like chastised for what he does for a living to be called out and to be shown for who he actually is a killer. And that realization for him is, is what he needs to survive. It's what he needs to be redeemed uh, in the eyes of himself and the eyes of uh, the world and in the eyes of Debbie ultimately. And so that's kind of the big grand narrative uh, of what's going on, at least for Cusack and, and for me uh, just in different ways. But that's a that's a huge thing, and, and it's something that I find to be really beautiful and really poignant about the film. What better setting for a message about sort of a two-faced kind of personality than a high school reunion? Oh, no. Yet. Right. <laughs> this is 10 years after you've left people that you've been going to school with for 18 years in some cases, and you've all split your, your separate ways, and then you come back together to basically try and make an impression about the life you've made for yourself. So you have all these characters who are trying to put on a face and say, look what I've done with my life. Let's see what you've done with yours. So I, I think those themes are, are like you said, really poignant. Uh, my, my big takeaway that I wrote down was that we all have baggage yeah, and we all have ways of coping with it. So you have these characters who are putting on faces and in order to sort of put on those faces and to, to cope with, the, the twists and turns that life have brought them. You've got Martin who has taken on this career of killing people to sort of cope with the abuse at the hands of his father. We assume mm -hmm. as a child, you have not, not to say anything about marijuana, but you have Paul smoking marijuana and a couple other characters smoking marijuana as a sort of way of coping with maybe age or with stress or whatever you have. Bob doing drugs. You have yeah. Debbie with a radio show. Not to say that people with radio shows are coping, but this is a person who's spent her whole life in the same place, was abandoned at prom by this character she loved so dearly. And here she is 10 years later, still sort of talking about it a little bit. And then you have characters who are dealing with like weird spiritual stuff, like the character who's in all the, the casts and the braces and stuff at the reunion. Yeah. You have characters who are <laughs> drunk out of their minds. So we, we all have different ways of sort of dealing with the baggage that life brings us. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with what you're talking about with putting on this face to sort of juxtapose the good and the bad of life mm -hmm. and trying to show people the good while dealing internally with the bad. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's so many things that could be said about kind of digging in deeper into those ideas. Um, but another thing I, I, I notice, and this took, you know, me watching it several times and getting older and kind of just coming to terms with it just in personal life is it's, it has always struck me how, uh, whenever he is talking to those people uh, that he knew in high school, 
he's he's literally telling them the truth and yet there's something about the way he says it or the lack of context or the inability for them to understand that he's a different person that keeps them from recognizing it as truth and and just this that that juxtaposition of him literally laying everything on the line saying this is what i do and being honest about it and yet they have no clue like they do not believe it. they think he's being funny and and <laughs> there's that scene where he's at the bar with debbie and uh the the drunk woman comes over to talk to them both and she asks him what he does and he says i sell you know, fried chicken all around the southland <laughs> right <laughs> you know and it's the first time he has actually lied about what he does and it's because anything he says is going to be thrown away at that point uh, because she's not going to remember any of it uh, <laughs> the next day. And which, by the way, that was actually his sister also. Uh, oh, great. That's funny. Yeah, trivia. A little piece of trivia there. <laughs> but just this 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 mixture of, of almost needing uh, language, uh, like you almost have to have a context for the things you say with people in order for them to have meaning. And he does not have that context with these people anymore. And so anything he says has no power. Like it has no uh, heaviness to it. It has no truth to it. And that's something I dealt with in that article as well. It's just how do we come to terms with uh, building a context in which the words we use and the words we say and the things we say about ourselves are true to other people. And that's, you know... (laughs) It's weird how how this movie kind of dissects those those things, and if you just watch it a couple of times and, and just take it for the surface element, like it's a fun film and it's hilarious and all these things. But the more you watch it, the more those kind of elements, there's some dissonance in the film, and eventually it just it sinks into your subconscious, and you're like, yeah, but why are these things happening? Like, why is he not being understood for what he's saying? And and all these things, and you start thinking about it, and that's where this film is strangely subversive, and and it kind of gets under your skin. Like I said, that's this is one of the reasons why I have watched it so many times is it keeps giving back to me each time I watch it. It's definitely one of those films that I think is going to benefit from rewatches, um, whether it's my second or third or your 127th or whatever the number is. Exactly. I I love movies that you can go back and you can watch again and again and again and walk away with something new or different or unique every single time you watch it um, by just maybe placing yourself in the perspective of a different character and exploring their their outlook on life and exploring their choices and why they do the things they do and why they are the way they are. And I think that this is one of those movies that I'm definitely going to benefit from rewatching and learning more about exactly what's going on in Martin's head. Yeah. So I think, I think that's really cool. Yeah. It, it, it's a fun film. It's a fun film for all, for all those reasons. Well, any other final thoughts or does that just about wrap it up? That, that just about wraps it up. Uh, you know, I tell people, uh, you know, go definitely read my article, but don't don't read it until you've seen it a couple of times at least, because I want you to actually enjoy the film. I don't want you to go into it thinking about these things automatically. I, I want you actually to uh, find humor and to just enjoy the film as as a film and uh, just let it wash over you. And because it's it's fun and there's a lot of uh, great dialogue and, and, and great uh, acting going on in there and 
Uh, it's 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 a it's a film that I always go back to and it always brings me joy. So it along with serendipity sort of make me wish I could see John Cusack in more films nowadays. I need to go back and explore more of his filmography because like I said, I like watching him on screen. He's so effortless in a way. Um, so I'm looking forward to watching more of him in this one and in others. And I liked the movie. I thought it was a fun movie. It's on Netflix. Uh, yes. Uh, which I'll, I'll probably put links to that in the show notes as well, or at least in the social media so that you can go out and watch it yourself because I think just about everybody has a Netflix subscription these days. No doubt. So you can go watch it for free right now or for free with your Netflix subscription. <laughs> Definitely. Well, cool. I think that wraps up the official 37th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for talking with me, Blake. Yeah, thank you for having me back on. Contact for the show. You can go to facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please, again, remember to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and share this episode or other episodes with your friends and family. And if you have feedback or ideas, you can email the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that or any other contact information to contact me about co-hosting. If you have a movie like Gross Point Blank or Back to the Future, a movie that you hold dearly that you would like to talk about for 45 minutes plus or whatever, uh, let me know because I'd love to have you on the show. So, Blake, where can people find you online? So if you want to uh, hear the murmurings of uh, of pretty much an insane person, uh, you can find, <laughs> find me on Twitter at Blake I Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R. Or Facebook, you can find my writing uh, page uh, slash Blake I Collier. Or you can go to my website, www.blakeicollier.com, where all of my podcasts, all of my articles, and everything I've pretty much written uh, can be found over there. And if you want to read my uh, bi-monthly column over at Real World Theology, go to the website and look under reviews. Uh, it'll be under Oh the Horror. Awesome. And I will be sure to include your article over Gross Point Blank that I was talking about in the show notes as well. Excellent. The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And again, all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. That's all for this week. Thank you, Blake. Having you on the show has been awesome. I, I've loved it. And thank you very much. It's, it's been a blast. And uh, it's, always, it's always great talking about my favorite film. So thanks. Definitely. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 37. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 38. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.